We'll hear argument now on number 98-149, College Savings Bank versus Florida Prepaid Post-Secondary Education Expense Board et al. Mr. Todd. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Petitioner seeks reversal of the Third Circuit's judgment. The 1992 Trademark Remedy Clarification Act made the states liable for Lanham Act violations. The Act was a valid exercise of the 14th Amendment remedial power of Congress. In the alternative, Florida prepaid should be deemed to have waived its immunity under the Pardon Doctrine. Solicitor General Waxman will argue the pardon issue. I would like to address abrogation. The Court of Appeals found, and Florida prepaid concedes, that Congress has unequivocally expressed its intent to abrogate the state's immunity for violations of Section 43A of the Lanham Act. The Act was a valid exercise of Congress's power because Section 43A protects business property rights from unfair competition, including false advertising. This Court has held that a business is a property right. That right includes the right to be free from unfair competition. The Solicitor General doesn't agree with you on this point, I take it. The Solicitor General does not, uh, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, That doesn't mean you're necessarily wrong, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We like to think that uh, the Solicitor General is half right, actually. (laughs) This Court has clearly found that a business is a property right, the specific property right which College Savings Bank claims in this case is the loss of customers and earnings caused by Florida prepaid's false advertising. The Court of Appeals acknowledged that a business is a property right, and that fact has also been conceded by Florida prepaid. In your view, Mr. Todd, was this property right created by Congress uh, in, in the Lanham Act? In our view, the property right was codified by the Congress in the Lanham Act. The, uh, the uh, tort of unfair competition and uh, uh, trademarks has always been, uh, have always been wrongs that have been tied together. They have long been recognized at the common law, in the common law. The 1947 Lanham Act uh, tied all these pieces together and created a clear statement uh, of a federal remedy uh, for unfair competition. Well, supposing Congress had never passed the Lanham Act, but just felt that uh, organizations so, such as yours were consider, put, put at a considerable disadvantage by the sovereign immunity doctrine of, of the states, uh, could Congress have stepped in and said, these are property rights created by, by state law, but we don't think the states adequately protect them when they have sovereign immunity? That is our position, uh, yes, Mr. Chief Justice, that the fact is that Congress can step in, uh, and having determined that the state remedies are generally inadequate and that there is a need to foster the interstate commerce, the commerce of this country, for there to be a federal standard governing these matters. But you're in trouble, I think, if you say it's based on interstate commerce, because uh, we've held that Congress can't abrogate sovereign immunity under, under its, its commerce power. Uh, yes, Mr. Chief Justice, I'm certainly aware of that. The, the 
passage of the Lanham Act is clearly based upon the Interstate Commerce Clause. It is a Commerce Clause exercise of congressional power. Uh, I think it's notable there's never been any question but that this is a valid exercise of Congress's power. However, the abrogation of the state's immunity, which did not take place until 1992, is an exercise of Congress's Section 5 14th Amendment power. Florida prepaid argues that uh, there is no ability on the part of Congress to protect property rights to the extent that they have been created or, I guess in this case, even codified uh, by the Congress. Uh, this is a view of the scope of Section 14, uh, of the 14th Amendment in Section 5 powers, which finds no support uh, in the text of the 14th is, is it your position that Congress passed this 1992 Act uh, to enforce the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, it is our position. And therefore, they must have concluded that uh, uh, the invocation of sovereign immunity denied your clients their property without due process of law? They certainly decided that there was a need for a a standard here and that given what they found to be an inadequate protection of these rights by the state, uh, they determined that in the exercise of the Section 5 power, there should be an abrogation. This Court has found that it is for Congress, at least in the first instance, to determine uh, whether and what legislation is needed in order to secure the rights uh, protected by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. It is our position uh, that uh, uh, Congress did act pursuant to a valid grant of power under Section 5. Well, Mr. Todd, that assumes, I take it, that um, the right to be free from unfair competition is a property right to be protected. Yes, Justice O'Connor. But it certainly is not like any traditional property right. Can you sell that right, do you suppose? No, but this Court has never uh, narrowed uh, property rights uh, in anything approaching a right to alienate or sell. The fact of the matter is this Court has Well, can you exclude others from the right to unfair competition? I mean, it's so far removed from anything we would think of as a property right. The mere fact that unfair competition might hurt the business or cause economic harm has never been thought to create a property right. Every tort would do that. Every zoning regulation well, but, but would affect the business economically. Justice O'Connor, I think in the first case, I would again like to reiterate that this Court has never held a particular set of attributes that must be met in order for a particular interest to be called property. They have held welfare benefits to be property, a cause of action to be property, a horse trainer's license to be property. Many of these things are obviously not alienable. And you cannot use the term right to exclude uh, as a part of any description of those property rights, which have clearly been held to be property rights within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Those things were all things that, that belonged to the person asserting the right. Uh, you, you, in your presentation, you, you said that the, the right to do business is a, is a property right. I'm, I'm prepared to concede that. But nothing has, has, uh, has stopped your client here from doing business. 
What you're complaining about is the fact that a competitor of your client has misrepresented his product. He has not even misrepresented your product. He's misrepresented his product. And I find it very difficult to understand how that involves any property right. Well, Justice Scalia — You still are free to do business, as, as, as you always have been. Well, Justice Scalia, we have not alleged takings. We are not contending uh, that our property as a whole has been taking. We are alleging a deprivation. And we do have possession of something. We have possession of customers and earnings from those customers, which are very much threatened by the false advertising. And it makes no difference whether the false — Anything that takes away customers — takes away a property right of yours? If, if it is proscribed by law, yes, I would say so, Mr. Uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, Mr. Todd, I don't know anything about your business, but there are a lot of businesses where customer lists are sold. Is that true in your case? For example, when, I know in the dairy business they sell customer lists all the time. <clears throat> and so if you take away custom, you're taking away part of something that's saleable. But that's not true here, I gather. Justice uh, Stevens, in the context of this case, no, I think customer lists are really not an issue. Uh, it is perfectly clear how and, and is it — I want to be sure of one other thing. You're not claiming an infringement of your trademark. We are not. No, okay. In, in, in the case of uh, Daniels versus Williams, where the prisoner uh, falls down the stairway and it's just a question whether there's a constitutional tort, we said that the Constitution is, in the 14th Amendment, particularly concerns the, the, the large concerns of governance, and that it's not designed to supplant tort, tort law. Uh, it, it seems to me that the same observation could be made with reference to your case. Justice Kennedy, I think the cases are not at all closely related. Uh, in Daniels, you had a state employee leaving a pillow on the stairs. It was a random act of a given employee. Here we have uh, a deliberate action by an agency created by the state of Florida. There's nothing random about this. This is not a tort of negligence. The state There's of Florida, a difference in negligence and intent, but the, but the observation and, uh, still, it seems to me, has force in this case that you're using the Constitution to make a constitutional violation out of what is generally concerned to be a, a, a tort uh, that is actionable within, within the concepts of tort law, but not under the Constitution. I would suggest two things. That I think that this Court clearly has found, they have never found a case, I have no case specifically on point. However, this Court has found that this kind of a right represents a property right, uh, the International News Service. The position of petitioner is that a property right is a property right, and it is not constitutionally permissible to begin parsing property rights which are protectable under the 14th Amendment and property rights which are not protectable. And to say that a business is property, standing alone, really doesn't mean anything unless you can give some enforcement power to that concept. A business is obviously more than a building and desks and chairs. A business consists of uh, goodwill, a going concern value. And a business as a property right is meaningless unless there is the ability to protect that business 
uh, from this kind of uh, injury. That, that argument might might get you somewhere if the claim in this case was that your goodwill had been taken or destroyed. If your competitor had misrepresented your product, I think that argument might have some weight. But the competitor hasn't done that. He's misrepresented his product. Your goodwill has not at all been affected. You've been affected in no way except that you lost customers. Well, Justice Scalia, the harm to the business uh, from a competitor misrepresenting his own goods and services is identical to the harm caused by a misrepresentation. It may of well be, but is it a deprivation of property? I assume then that if it's a deprivation of property, in addition to being a tort, it would it would be some sort of larceny. You ought to be able to get this fellow on a on a criminal charge for misrepresenting his product because he's taken away some of your property. Well, Justice Scalia, with respect, there is nothing in the jurisprudence of this Court which suggests that property interests are limited to those things which would be uh, deemed to be uh, larceny if stolen. Welfare benefits, a horse trainer's license and a driver's license aren't property interests, uh, are property interests, but they're not susceptible to that kind of a test. Is, is that right? If, if it were possible to take away uh, a horse trainer's license? As you say, it's possible to take away your customers? I don't know. If it's property, it's property. Well, what, this doesn't seem to me to be property. You, you might say that your, your, abil- your goodwill is a sort of property, and I suppose if he, were, if he were slandering you, I could see that there's some property involved. But he's just gone and is competing unfairly by misrepresenting his, pro- his product. Justice Scalia, the entire business of College Savings Bank is threatened by this kind of false advertising. And I would like to close and save some time for rebuttal just by stating that neither the Court of Appeals nor Florida Prepaid has cited a single decision by this Court in which an economic interest has not been found to be property. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Todd, I have a question, though. Are there not other remedies that your client can have. Could you not bring an ex-party Young-type injunction against Florida prepaid and say, stop what you're doing? Justice O'Connor, we believe that an ex-party uh, Young action uh, would lie. It would not make us whole. As you Are there state remedies for various state causes of action that could uh, result in damages, if you're correct? There are not adequate state remedies across the board. Even in Florida, the adequacy of the state remedy is uh, dubious at best. Thank you, Mr. Todd. Uh, General Waxman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in Pardon versus Terminal Railway, all nine justices agreed that at least where Congress has made its intent clear, the voluntary participation by a state in a commercial business that has traditionally been engaged in not by states, but rather by private parties for profit, will establish consent to private suits out of that business in federal court. This General, case — General Waxman. Most constitutional rights, when you talk about waiver, it requires a very explicit, uh, fully informed waiver, which uh, I don't think what you just described would meet that test. Do you? I think — I don't, and I think that the reason — well, 
to the extent that Congress has made its intent clear is where that test is meant. This Court, in the abrogation context in Atascadero and in the pardon waiver context in Welch versus Texas Transportation, made it clear that in order for there to be a loss by a State of its constitutional Eleventh Amendment right, the National Legislature must speak with unmistakable clarity. Now, waiver and abrogation are sometimes confused, and before this Court's decision in Seminole Tribe, it's understandable why they were. But they're very different concepts, as we think this Court recognized in Seminole Tribe. Abrogation is the unilateral act of power by the National Legislature, acting within its constitutional scope. Waiver requires the the voluntary consent of the State, whether it's waiver by express language or waiver by conduct. And, Mr. Chief Justice, the act of waiver following notice must be such that it reflects a voluntary, knowing waiver of a constitutional right. We definitely agree with that. General Weissman, do you really think there's a difference between this, between what you call a unilateral act of the government, the government saying the state shall be liable for any damages arising from its operation of a railroad? Unilateral. State's liable if it operates a railroad. And the government saying, on the other hand, the state shall be liable for any damages from the operation of a railroad if it should operate a railroad. That is — And the latter — the latter said, well, it's a choice to the state. If you want to operate a railroad, you'll be liable for damages. We're not acting unilaterally. You've waived it by operating a railroad. The test there, — there is a distinction between unilateral abrogation and consent, and, and the test really boils down to — as it does in the Tenth Amendment cases this Court has decided, like FERC versus Mississippi and United States versus New York, in terms of whether the State is exercising a genuine, reasonable choice and is not being coerced. Now, in the specific context of the Eleventh Amendment, where this Court has always recognized the viability and applicability of the concept of waiver and consent, this Court, subsequent to pardon in Missouri employees, qualified pardon in the way in which I just articulated. That is, it's not just if you run a railroad or if you choose to run a railroad. It's that the pardon doctrine, that is, voluntariness will be imputed and applied to the State if what the State is, the activity is not something that States traditionally have done, but instead is something that private parties have done and for profit. That's the test that we understand this Court substituted for pardon and therefore qualified pardon in Missouri employees. Is is there a third? I was surprised that we're talking throughout about consent, which is to some extent a fiction. And you didn't make an argument that I thought you might have made, which was there's no sovereign immunity here at all. After all, with respect to foreign countries, we have a restricted notion of sovereign immunity, and if a foreign sovereign engages in business, they will be liable to answer in our courts. If we don't apply that same notion to our own states, we are attributing to our states a kind of super-sovereignty 
that we don't accord to any foreign nation, and that seems to me rather strange. Well, I, th I think — I haven't made it expressly, but I think in the foreign sovereign immunities context, we apply that rule in the context of it is a consent, it is a waiver. That is, we have enacted a law, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities <coughs> Act, which says — one of the one of the elements of the act is if you if a foreign sovereign engages in commercial activity within the uh, personal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction of the United States courts, you are subject to those courts, and it's that same principle that applies here. Now there the are court didn't develop that principle. We didn't feel free ourselves to restrict traditional notions of sovereign immunity, even as to foreign countries, much less as to the states of the Union. It the, was done by legislation of Congress. The, the legislation of Congress simply permits, Justice Scalia, what we think is an operation here, which is the operation of a principle whereby if the, if the legislature makes clear, unmistakably clear, the conditions under which engaging in a truly voluntary activity, commercial activity, the, the, the truly voluntary act of subsequently doing that amounts to consent by conduct. And the general applies to the United States as well, I assume, right? I mean, if, 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 if you want to buy uh, Justice Ginsburg's uh, uh, notion, I assume it would apply not only to the states, but also to the federal government, that when the federal government acts in any, in any private uh, capacity, it will be subject to suit. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that the SG's office would be, would be attracted by that. Uh, well, we're, we're attracted by any, any notion where, where — any principle, the logic of which carries us to the result we think is just. General Waxman. Any port in the storm. <laughs> but, but I think, Justice, I think Justice Scalia, if I, if I can just respond to you for, for a moment, I think there are some important bedrock principles in the law that this Court has recognized that doesn't require any stretching for this Court to say that the pardon doctrine as a concept of waiver by consent with adequate notice and truly voluntary conduct is not one that should be abandoned. There are, there are perhaps more difficult questions about whether the facts of this case qualify, but there has always been a principle at the law that one may consent by knowing and voluntary conduct. Does that principle assume that in this case the national government could prevent the activity entirely? I think you could never have — a state choice would never be voluntary if one of the — you know, if the quid was something that the government couldn't possibly do. In other words, if the government — So that would distinguish the case that we're talking about from Justice Scalia's case, then, wouldn't it? Yes, and in because fact — there's, there's no super legislature in, uh, that, that, in effect, would, would be able to bar the United States. I, I, think, I, I think, for me at least, a useful way of thinking about the, 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 the continuity of the pardon principle as it's been qualified following this Court's decision in Union Gas and Seminole Tribe is to think about those cases themselves. If in Seminole Tribe, for example, Congress had said, look, uh, the Supreme Court decided in Cabazon Band that states can't regulate Indian game, gaming by Indian tribes. But we're going to allow you to regulate gaming by Indian tribes so long as you consent to subject to federal court dispute private party actions concerning 
the conduct of that regulation and your own gaming regulation. The states would have a choice to say, no, 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 we are very happy not regulating or undertake the regulatory regime. But we don't allow waivers of constitutional rights whenever the government has the ability to take away one thing in, in exchange for another. The government can't say, you may go, you may go into the financial market. So long as you agree to waive your, your right against self-incrimination with respect to any activities. That's right. And one of, for example, that's why one of the spending, in, in the spending clause context, one of the four, the last of the four factors in South Dakota versus Dole is it can't impose a condition that is itself prohibited by the Constitution. But, for example, Congress didn't have the authority in South Dakota versus Dole consistent with the 21st Amendment to say from now on that the, 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 the drinking age will be 21. But the condition here is prohibited by the Constitution as well. That's Just as the federal government has no power to coerce uh, testimony against the defendant, so also the government has no power to revoke the sovereign immunity of the state. The and, and to coerce the one by saying we're not going to let you do uh, — Run a railroad is no different, it seems to me, from coercing the other by saying we're not going to let you enter the financial market. My, if there were coercion here, Justice Scalia, I would agree. But I think the facts of this case are quite similar to the facts in Reeves versus Stake, which was one of the trilogy of cases this Court decided under the market participant principle. If the Court will recall, South Dakota was concerned that there were no cement producers in the region and it was adversely affecting the infrastructure of the state and commercial development in the state. Now, South Dakota had a number of means by which it could have remedied that. It could have. Are you saying saying that uh, when when, when states do research uh, that this is not governmental? No, no, not at all. I'm saying what I'm, the whole point of a Reeves versus Stake was that it was a cement plant and this wasn't a governmental activity. The state was engaging in private business. Right. The, the, the test that the, the test that this court articulated in those cases is: is this a market participant or a market regulator? Now we are not. The test that we advocate under Pardon doesn't make that distinction. It's much narrower than that. But the point is that when this court decided the market participation cases, what it said is. Because a premise of releasing the state of South Dakota from what otherwise would be certain obligations and restrictions under the Commerce Clause, if it were acting as a state pursuant to a core state function, was that as a, it was acting as a private participant in a market where people engage in for profit, and therefore, and this Court said, therefore it is subject to the same benefits and legal burdens that other private participants are. Some and people have thought that states ought to get involved in the market. I mean, there's a whole theory of, of, you know, socialist economies. Now, if the state of Minnesota should decide that it's just as important for the state to take an active part in, 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 in the management of businesses, I'll ownership of many, many things that used to be, and, and they think that's a necessary part of, uh, of a state's function. Who, who are we to say that, uh, that that particular thing cannot be done? I don't know what? where you derive out of the Constitution your line between traditionally uh, conducted state functions and, and, and state The the, the entire force of my argument and logic of my argument is the government is not saying it can't be done, period. That is, it involves an activity which, because states haven't traditionally done it, but private parties have for profit, the state has a free and voluntary choice. And there is no constitutional principle we submit 
that entitles or ought to entitles a party like Florida Prepaid to participate voluntarily in a commercial market engaging in commercial advertising under the enjoyment of the Lanham Act's protections, and yet to spurn the reciprocal obligation or condition clearly imposed by Congress of amenability to the remedial provisions of the Act in order to ensure the fairness to all who well, compete in General the market. General Waxman, the law for a long time, and maybe it still has made a distinction between governmental functions of, of a government and proprietary. And the, the, uh, I think a lot of courts just felt that didn't work, that, that it was just too hard to tell which were which. Doesn't your distinction offer some of the same problems? It does offer some of the same problems, but it's a distinction this Court was prepared to make and I think is prepared to make in the market participation, market regulation field that I just talked about. And we, even we do make it with respect to foreign sovereigns. That's exactly the line, which doesn't, by the way, emerge from Congress in 1976. It was the government's position for years. And that there was no immunity once you engage in a market activity. That's right. And we also — the, the courts also make it, uh, 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 Mr. Chief Justice, in other contexts. For example, the legal status of the United States or states as litigants in — I think it's United States versus California. The question was, is the United States appearing in court in a sovereign function or as a subrogee of a private party or representing some proprietary interest? Well, and well, I, I think I, it's — I, I was going to say, I mean, obviously, the, I would say the culmination of this Court's frustration in trying to distinguish between traditional government functions and non-traditional government functions was probably expressed by this Court in Garcia in the context of a, a substantive Tenth Amendment regulation. And I would simply say in regard to that, that what we have here is, number one, a, this isn't the Garcia test. This is a test, the parameters of which have been made quite specific by Missouri employees. It's also a test under the 11th. May I finish my sentence? Yes. A, a Assuming test, it's a short one. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I won't put any dependent clauses in it. A test under the 11th Amendment with. <laughs> I won't put two dependent clauses, which presupposes the existence of a principle of consent or waiver. Thank you for your courtesy. Thank you, General Waxman. Mr. Mallon, we'll hear from you. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, sir. Mr. Chief uh, Justice, and may it please the Court, the right to be free of false advertising is not a property right protected by the uh, 14th Amendment. Thus, uh, the 1992 amendment to the Lanham Act that purported to abrogate sovereign immunity of the states cannot be saved by the 14th Amendment. This was the position accepted uh, by the Court of Appeals, by the District Court, and concurred in by the Solicitor General. What uh, Petitioner CSB claims is the property is some loss of revenue that could occur as a result of the alleged false advertising. This is revenue. That's, that's not a, an unusual suggestion, is it? As I remember, the Sherman Act provides that one who's injured in his property can recover damages, and he's injured in his property if he loses a lot of business. Why isn't the word property as used in the Sherman Act 
right on what we've got here. I think the, the, the uh, use of property in the Sherman Act is for particular antitrust purposes. Uh, its use in the 14th Amendment has a constitutional dimension, which has been spelled out in the uh, uh, jurisprudence of this court. All I'm suggesting is it's not a totally novel thought to say that someone whose business is destroyed or seriously harmed through loss of profits, loss of revenue, loss of customers, has suffered an injury to his property. Yeah, and, and, and you agree, and, agree with in, that? In the sense that that person has a claim uh, for the injury, but the question is whether this property, this revenue that's never been received, and the only way you can recover damages by showing false advertising, causation, the fact of damages, and damages with a reasonable certainty is all contingent. And that kind of a uh, right, a right to be free of false advertising for 14th Amendment uh, purposes hasn't been looked upon by property. On March 3rd, uh, this Court decided American uh, manufacturers' insurance uh, against Sullivan where in the context of workman compensation benefits in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, a uh, beneficiary who had already been determined to be eligible uh, was held not to have a property right in the continuation of payment of medical expenses because there was a requirement that the medical expenses had to be necessary and reasonable, and that had to be determined later. So that that kind of uh, property doesn't raise a 14th Amendment problem. Do Otherwise, think, may I ask talk, another question. Do you think goodwill is property? Uh, good, goodwill uh, is likely to be property. And if so, if one's uh, goodwill is taken away, has that person been deprived of property? If if goodwill is taken away uh, uh, or destroyed, destroyed, which is a, a a hard concept uh, to grab a hold of, I think uh, uh, that there would be a problem of turning the tort that was involved. Well, my question good- is very simple. If one's goodwill has been destroyed, has the person been deprived of property? I think if one's goodwill has been destroyed, it uh, uh, is likely that the person has been deprived of property. But you don't, you don't. You, you assert that didn't happen here. No, there's a, a clearly there no destruction no of goodwill. The allegation here is that Florida prepaid misdescribed its own property. Uh, and as a result, says uh, the plaintiff in the case below, I lost some business that I would have gotten, some revenue that I would have gotten. Uh, for which similar to a there case would be a tort the, claim for damages. Similar to a claim under the Robinson-Patman Act that the competing seller sold below cost for a long period of time, causing a plaintiff to lose a lot of business. That's sometimes thought of as a loss of property. But you're saying it's it, not. It's usually thought of as a loss of profits uh, and uh, future profits, which have an element of speculation in them, which is quite different from uh, uh, the kind of property rights that this Court has found on a case-by-case basis in its jurisprudence under the 14th Amendment. If we pause to consider the effect of treating this kind of a right as a property right under the 14th Amendment, then the 14th Amendment becomes a wide charter for legislation on any subject uh, going beyond the First Amendment 
and really makes it uh, uh, relatively easy for the national government to uh, uh, abrogate sovereign immunity. Well, I think part of the government's argument, your opponent's argument here, uh, Mr. Mellon, is that Congress can perhaps write with a broader sweep than just strict definitions of property previously along the lines of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was involved in in the city of Bernie. Were there findings by Congress here uh, as to deprivations of property by the — When it comes to false advertising, unfair competition prong of the Lanham Act, and the amendment to the Adam Act, there were no findings by Congress, no discussion from Congress, no suggestion that there's any kind of problem out there with the states doing this or that there's any inadequacy of remedy. Uh, there was nothing in the legislative record. There's nothing, nothing in the judicial record. There is no reason to think that Congress is addressing any kind of a due process problem uh, that relates to false advertising by states. Uh, of any kind whatsoever. And what this amounts to is federalizing the law of torts, so that uh, the law of business torts in particular. Yes, but you uh, don't and, question the power of Congress to do that if the defendant were not a state. But, pardon me, Your Honor? You do not question the power of Congress to enact this legislation providing remedies against non-states, against well, private defendants. That's absolutely correct, They can correct, federalize that to that extent. Uh, uh, and, and I this gather, is not a challenge to the constitutionality of the Lanham no, Act. No, just the application to, to the state. 11th, by, through 11th Amendment. Right. And you're We're not even challenging whether the law applies to the states. There could be ex parte young to enforce it. What we're challenging is that there is not a basis to abrogate the 14th Amendment. Uh, uh, but your argument would not apply if they'd, they'd asserted an infringement of their trademark, would they? Well, the, the argument in the case of the trademark would be a, a different set of arguments. In the trademark area, again, there's no showing of lack of remedies at the state. You don't have a due process problem just by interfering with well, property. Well, is it your argument, must that be Congress, lack of your argument that Congress didn't make the appropriate findings? Obviously, they thought there was some purpose in the legislation. Well, uh, I'm sure they did, and at the time they passed the legislation, it was before Seminole Tribe. Right. And Congress is under the impression that under the Commerce Clause, they could simply abrogate it. Right. And that's what they tried to do. They thought there was a reason to do so, or they wouldn't have passed the statute. Yeah, yes, but the reason had uh, the reasons have nothing to do with the constitutional dimensions. Well, they of the have, 11th Amendment. if you're arguing though that there were not adequate findings, you're in effect saying they they should have made different findings, aren't you? Are you? Not, is that, that well, not your argument? I, I don't think this court has required findings uh, from Congress. Findings can be very helpful if there's the right kind of findings to know. Let me just ask one to be sure. There's got to be a basis somewhere. Let let me ask you a question. Yes. If Congress had said, we have studied the matter at great length, and we think there's a problem, that Florida has a couple hundred patents out there and all sorts of patent infringement, trademark infringement going on by states, because they've accepted the suggestion that Justice Flea made, they've decided to go into business all over the place where they didn't before. And we think there's a real problem. And therefore, we're enacting the statute. Would that have made any difference? I don't think it would. No, there, there has to be a basis for what it's doing. Well, I'm assuming there was a basis factually for what they did. But nevertheless, wouldn't you argue they're without power to take care of that problem? Uh, on, on the, first of all, on the property point, since there's no property right, 
Yes, I would argue that without power. And since the record shows that there are remedies and the and state level, that's, that's I totally would, irrelevant because if because you're saying even if Congress had found there were no remedies, the result would be the same. Well, if Congress had found there were no remedies and there were no remedies, and deference is Congress is entitled to deference on its findings. Well, in the city of Bernie case, I think the, the court said that where Congress seeks to go beyond the strict coverage of the amendment itself and perhaps wants to have file and uh, classified as enforcement legislation, that the fact that Congress had, cons- had found that there were a number of abuses, uh, it could be of some importance in deciding whether Cong- Congress could go that extra step. Yes. It, in, in that case, uh, it indicated that Congress has discretion, and th- the fact that they had some findings would be significant. But in the end, Congress can't change the Constitution to redo what the remedy is. And if, if there's a constitutional wrong, the remedy has to have a proportionality and congruence to uh, what the alleged constitutional wrong is. Now, in the false advertising, there's no indication that there's any problem whatsoever. Uh, from the Congress or from the literature or on any basis. Mr. Mallon, may I switch you to the other prong of this argument, and I would like to return to the question that I asked General Waxman. As I understand what's called the restricted notion of sovereign immunity, it isn't a matter of consent. It is a matter of how we define sovereign immunity, restricted doesn't include commercial activities, and that notion is codified in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. There is a certain anomaly, is there not, to say that states are not suable in federal court because of their sovereign immunity when any foreign nation would be? Uh, With all respect, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I do not see that anomaly. Uh, Sovereign immunity for uh, uh, foreign countries, I believe, is a matter of the will of Congress that can be created on well, whatever. Well, Congress codified what had been a doctrine, a common law, federal common law doctrine that had been around many, many years before the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Well, at the point I'm making, it is not constitutional, so Congress could massage it the way it wanted to. Foreign governments. It was not- a definition of what does sovereign immunity mean. I mean, what it all goes back to: you can't sue the king, and what. What was the scope of that immunity? And I thought the idea was, well, it isn't, doesn't cover everything that a sovereign does, only some things. Your Honor, I would tend to think that Congress made a policy decision there with regard to foreign governments. The Eleventh Amendment covers states. States are covered by it as a constitutional matter, and there's never been anything in uh, the jurisprudence of this Court to suggest the sovereign immunity doesn't apply to states when states are doing something that's arguably commercial. Well, that, that's true, true, except uh, when a state is in the court of another state, the Nevada versus Hall case. Does, does, does Nevada have sovereign immunity from suit in the California court? Uh, a suit between states to states. No, a suit by a citizen of California against the state of Nevada in a California court. A California state court? Yes. Uh, I, I don't think that's... For in, in this case, for instance, uh, 
could uh, the, the Florida entity have been sued in the state courts of another state? Uh, that would depend on the law of those other states. The Eleventh Amendment doesn't address that problem. The Eleventh Amendment is a limitation on the judicial power of yes, uh, but it might indicate that the sovereign immunity of the state is subject to some qualification. If the state could be sued in the courts of another state, what would be the policy against prohibiting uh, the <coughs> suit in the, 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 the federal court? The object of the 11th Amendment is the state ought to be sued in its own courts, if at all. But if it can be sued in the courts of another state and there's jurisdiction in that other state, uh, why should the state care if it goes to a federal court in New Jersey as opposed to a state court? In the question of whether, whether a state can be sued in another state is first a question of state law, and it might <coughs> raise constitutional dimensions, but they would not be Eleventh Amendment. Well, let me put this. Mr. Mellon, let, let's, let's assume. Let's assume. Uh, that the uh, Florida entity here could be sued in a state court in the state of New Jersey. Let's assume that. Uh, What is the interest in insisting on a state court of another state as opposed to a a jurisdiction of a federal court? What what would be the purpose of that? Well, uh, other than the words of the 11th Amendment, which (laughs) — Yes, that's uh, what I was going to say to answer. If we probe the reason for it. The, the reason for it is that the Eleventh Amendment is a limitation on the ju- judicial power of the United States, and it represents a concern that the states had from the very beginning of being hauled into the courts of uh, the new national government yeah. and subject to the will of the new national government in their courts. Mr. Mallon, do you think that that lending and borrowing money can fairly be described as a commercial activity? Well, in some contexts, yes, it could be described as a commercial activity. In any context, could it not? Isn't it most of the prototypical commercial activity, lending and borrowing money? I think it's a very — And what was the Eleventh Amendment directed against, primarily? What kind of suits were they worried about? Well, the, the suit that uh, created the great controversy was a suit on a, on a note, on a they debt. They were worried about suing for debts that they had contracted in order to fund the war, isn't that right? right? That, that was one of the great worries. But the Eleventh uh, Amendment has never been uh, so limited. And is, is, is it the case that, that uh, if a state decides it's going to go in the ice cream business, going to sell shirts, decides to open their own coffee bars, run grocery stores, that federal commercial led regulations just out the window, insofar as federal commercial regulation involves giving individuals who are hurt private actions in a, in, a, in a federal court. No fraud cases, no securities fraud cases, no antitrust price fixing cases, no federal trade commission cases, all those cases, even though the states knew the new Starbucks, they saw money in that. Uh, uh, all federal regulations out insofar as it depends upon uh, 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 private people who are hurt bringing causes of action in a federal court. Is that your view? My view is I don't know where this court may draw the line. But, oh, what line? What line? I I wanted to know, uh, uh, is it all out? Your answer is either yes or no. If your answer is yes, I'm going to ask you, why did Hamilton and Madison take against Starbucks? I mean, but, but uh, if your answer is no, I'm very interested. I mean, what's the what line? Yeah, the, the line that this Court has drawn so far 
the line that drew in the uh, pardon case as modified is a line of sometimes called core government functions. This case involves education. Ah, so, so you would say that if, in fact, uh, they do go into a proprietary field, if they do go into the business, uh, business, then they do waive. Then they do waive any right. Then you're arguing that this isn't one of those cases. Well, which is that you they don't waive it simply by going into the proprietary business. There has to be some uh, statutory setup. No, no, we'll write the statute. We'll it, say, by the way, Justice Scalia pointed out right at the beginning. Uh, we'll, we'll write that out. <laughs> that, that's no problem. I, I want to know if you're going to defend this line, nothing proprietary, if you're going to try to distinguish your case. But you, what I'm trying to do is to say that one must be careful about government activities of too quickly say they're proprietary. In the modern state, for example, in education, funding education involves all kinds of programs. If it was Starbucks, I mean, if they're, if they're out there selling coffee, T-shirts, and bananas, or whatever, uh, then, then you have no problem with the waiver. Yeah, I have no problem with saying that that's beyond state activities. That, that you find that in the 11th Amendment? I mean, you just... You find that in the 11th Amendment? No, I don't find that in the 11th Amendment. I'm drawing that from the jurisprudence of your court ah, up okay. until now. Yeah. Yeah. A lot so, of so you, it's hard to find in the 11th yeah. Amendment. <laughs> but you are going to make it, in effect, Section 5 doctrine. Is that it? The Section 5 power under the 14th Amendment is basically going to have this, this pardon condition on it, uh, uh, together with a, a, uh, a commercial activity condition, uh, so that if the activity, as Justice Breyer said, truly is commercial, uh, and the states truly do have a choice whether or not to get into it, then there is power to protect property under Section 5. Uh, and in a case like this, as he put it, if they were selling coffee rather than uh, engaging in tuition funding schemes, uh, it would be within the power of Congress to subject them to the Lanham Act? Is that your position? No, I, I've made no such suggestion. All right. Now, why, why is no, the uh, where do you — you spoke of drawing a line, and I thought you were conceding that that might be the place to draw the line. Where no, do you — what is the line, and where would you draw it? There's two issues. One is pardon, and one is the 14th Amendment. I thought we were talking about pardon, the okay. implied waiver. I have never suggested in any way that under the 14th Amendment, Section 5, that this line of government function and non-government function has anything to do with it. The question there, is there property? And I think there's not here. And is there due process of law in the state? Which okay. I think there is. So here. you're saying there is still a vital pardon exception, in effect, to the, to the limitation announced in Seminole. Is that right? Uh, I as far as pardon. you know. Is pardon, is pardon, you, you concede that pardon is good law if you no, have facts no, to I support No, I do not. It? not. We haven't gotten to that point. Uh, many lower courts have, an, strike many, a number of lower courts have uh, concluded that pardon didn't survive Seminole trials. Okay. Some have questioned it. Here's the, 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 the thing that I'm trying to get at is I thought you were conceding that there is some kind of a line to be drawn. Uh, that whether we're talking about uh, 11th Amendment Article I power or whether we're talking about the Section 5 enforcement power, there are some things that the state can do to subject, uh, that the national government can do to subject the states to national regulation like the Lanham Act 
but, the, but certain conditions have to be met. And that is how I thought you were saying you draw the line. What are those conditions, or did I misunderstand you completely? On, uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. On the 14th Amendment, I wasn't suggesting that there's any line to be drawn between commercial, so-called commercial activities of the state or other activities of the state. That's simply an issue of whether the state has taken property, interfered with property, so there must be property involved, and whether the state has provided due process, there must be due process involved. So So that, for example, if if the state does go into uh, a a Starbucks operation uh, and it becomes very predatory, it's driving all of its competitors out of business, uh, there, is, there, is, there is no power under Section 5, I take it, uh, under which the government might act, the, the national no, government it, might unless act. Unless it's taken property, it's got to go to a property right. Well, it's driving, its, it's, driving its competitors out of business. Is that taking property? Uh, no, Your Honor, I don't think so. Okay. Um, what, if it's, uh, what if it's hiring uh, thugs to go in and, and burn, its, uh, burn its competitors' uh, coffee bars down? Any, any possibility of federal action then, under Section 5? I want to be sure I understand the hypothetical, Your Honor. The, the, uh, the state uh, goes into the coffee bar business, and it decides a good way to, to increase its business would be to burn the coffee bars of its competitors. Is there anything the national government can do under the property prong of the 14th Amendment? Yes, that, that would be a violation if they, uh, the state burned property of its competitors that would be taking that property and you still have the question of whether there was a due process right in the judiciary of the state. Presumably, if the state agents burn somebody else's property, in every state that I know of, you can bring a suit in state in the state courts and get full compensation. So long but as the state is not denying due process of law. So the national government could not say we have our doubts about the effectiveness of that remedy in the courts of the very state that is burning down the bars. That would not be open to the national yeah, government. Yeah. That would not be a basis to Section 5 legislation? uh, Congress has discretion, but that discretion can't change the fact that if the state provides due process of law so that the individual whose bar was burned could bring a suit in the state court and obtain full compensation, the state has not deprived property without yeah, due process of law. What if they do, as some states, they have a total sovereign immunity. They don't provide a remedy. Some states would not provide a remedy in that situation. Yeah. If, if, what do you do? Yes, Your Honor, if, uh, if uh, it's well established that the state takes property and uh, doesn't have a, uh, a remedy for it, that that's lack of due process of law. In a taking case, every but state is it, required given, to have Given that, does it, are you then saying in that situation it would be appropriate to — it would be permissible for Congress to authorize a suit against the state in a federal court for damages? Yes, where uh, the state has denied due process of law. But there's nothing in this record. I don't think they have to authorize it, wouldn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't there be a constitutional uh — Yes, and the, uh, the Constitution requires in a taking case that the state have a remedy — uh, inverse con- uh, condemnation, that remedy is not adequate. There can be certiorari to this court directly out of that, uh, that proceeding. Yeah, but all those cases are before our latest decisions. You're sure the 11th Amendment would not be a defense in those cases? You're, you're agreeing that that would not be? Yeah, uh, yes, I'm assuming that it would not be because of the requirement, the constitutional requirement, that that remedy be provided. 
Now, as to the other uh, line, you say there are two arguments. One's the 14th Amendment. The other one is pardon. I'm not sure what your position is. Do you, do you favor this distinction between commercial and non-commercial or, or, or not? You, no, I, I, you seem to have gotten yourself into the position of defending it. I had thought that you thought that, uh, that pardon was gone. Yeah. My first position is that pardon is inconsistent with uh, Seminole Tribe and that this Court should take this occasion to recognize that and overrule pardon. That's my first position. In other words, you're thinking that Hamilton and Madison, and uh, they, they, if you'd even ask them, let's imagine you ask them, say we have this state that's gone sort of wild for commercial ventures. And they're acting not like a duck, they're acting like a business. Exactly identical. That you, Mr. Madison, believe that those same rules that affect every other business of the United States that Congress has enacted, like antitrust laws, should not apply simply because the name on, the, on that business, which is in every other respect identical, happens to be the Commonwealth of Massachusetts shoe store or etc. And, I mean, let's imagine we ask the founding fathers. I mean, wh why wouldn't they have said, acts like a duck, treat it like a duck. Acts like a business, treat it like a business. Uh, if we have an 11th Amendment uh, issue, under the 11th Amendment, uh, the state cannot be sued unless it denies due process or it has a voluntary uh, amendment. The federal government is not without remedies. The federal government can sue. The federal government can spa pass a spending statute and require certain things that relate to that spending statute to be done uh, by the state. Uh, an individual can use ex parte young to put a stop to that activity. So we're not saying that federal law can just be ignored, but the private suit by a private individual for money damages is prohibited by the 11th Amendment, and it should not be allowed on the basis of a legal fiction that there's been a waiver when there really hasn't been a wa waiver. In a is situation where the waiver is demanded, the waiver is the same as abrogation. Mr. Todd, is it your position that there is no sovereign immunity principle operating here, which is in addition to or different from the 11th Amendment? You, you've spoken a number of times of the 11th Amendment as being a bar. Is there any sovereign immunity principle aside from the 11th Amendment? Well, the state has its own sovereign immunity pr principles. And when I say 11th Amendment, I'm talking about the well, cognizable and cognizable in a federal court. read into the 11th Amendment. Cognizable in a federal court. Is or, there any sovereign immunity principle in addition to the terms of the 11th Amendment that would be cognizable in a federal court uh, as a state defense? Well, I think the 11th Amendment, as interpreted by this court, includes a full bundle of sovereign immunity. So that would be taken into account. Well, does it include any concept of sovereign immunity in addition to the strict terms of the 11th Amendment itself? In, a, in addition to the 11th Amendment? Yeah. Only those things that the Court has interpreted that it be included. It doesn't Well, I'm asking you how the Court should interpret it. Uh, a state is defending a Lanham Act suit, say, uh, does the state have, uh, and, and let's assume Section 5 is not involved here for a moment, does the state have any defense other than 
a defense consisting of the terms of the Eleventh Amendment itself. Uh, Can the State, in other words, claim a sovereign immunity defense which is broader than the strict terms of the Eleventh Amendment? The the State claims a sovereign immunity defense that goes beyond the specific language of the Eleventh Amendment to include what was thought to be the original understanding as found by Hans versus Louisiana and later confirmed by this Court, among other places, in Seminole Tribe. Thank you, Mr. Mallon. The case is submitted.